I'm really um, pleased to introduce our keynote lunchtime speaker, Dr. Stephen Tepper. Stephen Tepper is Dean of the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts at Arizona State University, the nation's largest comprehensive design and art school at a research university. He is a leading writer and speaker on U.S. cultural policy, and his work has fostered national discussions around topics of cultural engagement, art, and democracy. Prior to joining ASU, he served as the chief architect of the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University, a national think tank for cultural policy and creativity. He is also co-editor and contributing author of Engaging Art, The Next Great Transformation of America's Cultural Life. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Stephen Tepper. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, it is great to be here. I have a lot of friends here in California. I've been here many times talking about, uh, about the arts and how the arts are changing in America. Um, so my, uh, I think the title of my talk was, Does Arts Engagement Even Matter? Which sounds like I'm the climate denier. <laughs> so like I should say, no, it doesn't matter, and then text that uh, the arts are just a hoax. They don't actually exist. Um, and uh, I'm normally presenting with PowerPoint. That's sort of my uh, balletic approach to oratory, is to dance and to talk and to... So I don't have that today. So I've drawn all of my PowerPoint slides on this piece of paper, and I'll just sh hold it up like this. If you can't see it in the back, let me know. Um, so uh, let me start uh, maybe from the beginning of my in involvement in uh, thinking about engagement in arts and culture. So it was 2004 when uh, Lucas Held, who's director of communications for the Wallace Foundation, called me. I was at Princeton at the time, working at the Center uh, for Arts and Cultural Policy Studies. And uh, the National Endowment for the Arts had just released their most recent findings of arts participation, collecting uh, data over the, since 1982 of whether attendance rates were going up or down in all the benchmark art forms. And he said, it, it doesn't look great. It looks like in most of the benchmark art forms, we've seen pretty significant declines in the percentage of Americans who are attending. So anywhere between 20 and 35% declines in symphony attendance, opera, uh, museum, uh, theater, ballet. Um, and the Wallace Foundation at that time had probably invested $30 million over the previous decade in arts participation in one way or another. And, uh, and so a, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune called Lucas and said, it looks like the Wallace investments aren't paying off. Um, and so Lucas called me and said, is there something more nuanced here? Is there a way we could think about arts participation that can inform my response to this reporter? Uh, I said, yes, but I'm not going to be able to get that information in 24 hours. Uh, but if you'd like to invest, we will try to collect some of the best thinkers to really push and evaluate what's really happening around arts participation, arts engagement in America. So we had about 12, 14 scholars um, writers and journalists participate in, uh, in writing for this book, uh, Engaging Art, The Next Great Transformation of America's Life. Lynn Connor was one of our 
author. She's going to be speaking later today. I'll be referencing her work uh, in just a second. Um, and uh, as we got involved in this project, uh, it occurred to me that in arts and culture, we'd sort of been guilty of what I would call the Robert Putnam fallacy. So Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone, uh, The Disappearance of America's uh, uh, civic, uh, civic Life. And he had looked at a bunch of data that had shown that Americans were joining less. They were joining the Rotary Club less, they were joining the Kiwanis Club, Club less. He even showed that they were bowling in the same numbers, but they weren't bowling together anymore. They, were bowling, they weren't bowling in leagues. Um, when he published that book, lots of people responded and said, you're looking in the wrong places. If you look at uh, private dance classes and soccer leagues and all kinds of other uh, groups getting together around sustainability, that there's actually a lot of civic engagement and civic, uh, civic activity. Uh, it's just not in the traditional institutional forms that, that we're used to seeing. And so what we were discovering when we were writing this book is that was in fact happening in arts and culture, that just as we were wringing our hands and lamenting that the great cultural generation was passing, that people were no longer coming to our uh, concert halls and our museums uh, in the same numbers, there was actually a renaissance of creativity, a renaissance of engagement if we just broadened our aperture a little bit. So I want to go back a little bit uh, before the 20th century, just to give you a sense of the trajectory of how we have engaged with arts and culture in the history of this country. So in the 19th century, arts participation was local, it was highly engaged, interactive, it was participatory, it was in the home, everybody participated. So if you think about it, um, if you wanted to listen to music in the 19th century, most likely you either played it on your piano in the parlor or on your guitar on the front porch. In fact, the most number of pianos ever sold in America happened at the turn of the 20th century. So in 1910, we sold 320,000 pianos. Um, our population has obviously exploded, tripled, but we've never, ever sold more pianos. There were 150,000 drawing manuals that were printed in the 19th century, because if you wanted to have a, uh, an image of your loved one, you drew it yourself. If you wanted to listen to Shakespeare, most likely there were traveling troops and there were some theaters at that time, but most likely you performed it in your own living room. Uh, many, many, many Americans knew Shakespeare, could recite Shakespeare. It was part of uh, family life. It wasn't something that other people did for you. Um, so fast forward into the 20th century. The 20th century was an amazing century for arts and culture in this country, but it distinctly removed arts and culture from our everyday lives and put it in other places. Right? There was an incredible professionalization of the arts. We built amazing arts, and arts colleges, and suddenly we started training professional artists. We built incredible national arts enterprises, businesses, film companies, 
uh, record labels that started producing art that you would then play in your living room, on your radio, on your television. Other people were making art for us. Increasingly, we became more passive consumers of art. We saw the rise of the nonprofit arts organization, a place where we could gather up all this expertise and curate it and present it. We saw the rise of what I would call cathedrals of cultural consumption, right? Places, destinations that you had to leave your home and go to and have these extraordinary experiences, not part of everyday life. And in the process, we created some distance between the public and the arts. As Lynn described in our book, and she might describe later today, we, arts participation became come to our space, if it was a performance space, sit in the theater in a darkened room and wait until it's appropriate to applaud on cue as opposed to a very robust, interactive, interpretive exchange of ideas around arts and culture, we were now uh, awaiting professionals to deliver that arts experience for us. Now, interestingly, uh, these nonprofits exploded. This is one of the most successful cultural policy, any policy model ever in the history of, uh, of, of any policy framework. So we had a couple hundred nonprofits in the 1950s, and we now have over 100,000. Every single city, large, small, medium, has access now to professional theater and music and museums. Amazing. Um, what's interesting, if you look at the last decade of the, of the 20th century, the number of nonprofits increased by 55%. But we saw almost no increase in attendance. So supply started to outstrip demand. You know, we sort of had this asymptotic growth, explosion, and then leveled off. So we started seeing that our, again, this is sort of what led to this 2002 report from the NEA, that arts audiences were declining. So now, sort of flash forward, uh, as we're writing this book, and we're discovering that we're actually in this incredible renaissance, um, in some ways, uh, you can think back to 2007, does anybody remember the um, uh, Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2007? A mirror. It was a mirror on the cover of, of Time Magazine. The Person of the Year was you. Right, so we started entering what Seawright uh, uh, Mills, a sociologist, described as the exuberant expression of self. Right? Everybody had something to say, and increasingly, um, technology was enabling us to say it. So this is a remarkable statistic. In fact, I don't think, I've never seen a statistic change this much over the course of, uh, of four decades. In 1950, we asked young people in a national survey, 
Uh, how many agreed with the statement that I'm a very important person? 12% agreed with that statement. In 1990, 85%. Right, so now we're seeing the, uh, the, the evolution of, um, of what I would call the IWW, IWW, H-I-W-I generation. Everybody knows what that is, right? No. I want what I want, when and how I want it. This is how uh, the new generation is engaging in arts and culture, and it's showing up in a lot of, a lot of places. Um, it is showing up in uh, what I would call uh, life-catching. So um, imagine uh, Going to a concert today, uh, I took my daughter to see Taylor Swift uh, about uh, 10 years ago, but it could have been 50 years ago. Um, and, uh, and it's just a different kind of concert experience. The kids are showing up in costume that they have sewn or designed to be part of the concert experience. And every, seemed like every 30 feet, there was another photo opportunity for a child to stand in front of something with the Taylor Swift brand on it and photograph themselves so they can instantaneously share it with their friends who are either at the concert or not at the concert. So this is what uh, trend uh, uh, analysts call life-catching, which is that it's not worth doing anything unless you can capture it, and capture yourself in it, and then share that with someone else. Right, so that's the mentality of this IWW, IWW, HIWI, generation. Now, a lot of things are changing that are um, allowing this exuberant expression of self, right? So we have huge technological changes. The cost of making a movie or uh, recording your own music um, or uh, producing your own graphic novel have gone down tremendously. So, so many more people have access to making things that can express their ideas in the world. You have this explosion of choice. Uh, we've got now um, 20,000 movies available to us streaming, 31 million songs available to us. And all that choice is also leading to what I would call the curatorial me. Right, this idea that you can curate your cultural experience exactly how you want it to be. On your time schedule, you can create your own serial, serialized culture. Right? You don't have to watch the whole thing at once, or you can if you choose to. You can, um, you can decide exactly what your shoes should look like. My son ordered basketball shoes from Nike. There were about 30 options for customizing that shoe exactly as he wanted it. And soon, with 3D printing, you're going to have clothing being fabricated on demand locally. Everybody's going to be wearing a prototype, right? There'll be no mass retailing and manufacturing. We also saw, um, in the beginning of the 20th century, a, a, a sort of a rise of what I would call the cre a creative ethos. Now, that could be seen in the explosion of our sensibility for, for well-designed things, right? The rise of IKEA, who claims that uh, 
15% of the British population was conceived in one of their beds. Um, and that more people visit Ikea on a Sunday morning than go to church now. Um, but we have certainly seen the explosion of, of visual sophistication among many, many more people, expecting well-designed objects to be surrounding them. The Lemelson MIT Index surveyed young people and found that um, uh, the arts are now uh, one of the most popular career goals. Twice as many young people, 17%, say they want a career, this is high school kids, want a career in the arts compared to 8% that want a career in business. We've seen an explosion in the number of graduates of arts and design colleges at the university level. So we've now got uh, 130,000 new graduates of visual and performing arts degrees every year. Right? Again, these are, these, this is not evidence that our cultural life is atrophying. Um, but rather that there is a real renaissance. Uh, in the beginning of this century, we saw sales of guitars rise by uh, three times. We saw more and more people playing musical instruments in their home. It went from 35% to over 50%. We saw that um, makerspaces were exploding in this country, and they still are, thousands and thousands. High schools now, the NSF supported 1,500 makerspaces in high schools across America. Every city has dozens of makerspaces now. These are, our, these are our community centers of the future. Etsy, 1.6 million artists and crafters selling their work on that online market. And even if you look at the Irvine report here in California, when they opened their aperture a bit to look at arts participation, they found an explosion. So 50% of 18 to 22-year-olds, young adults, had made their own music. Almost 60% of all adults said that they had done some kind of visual art over the course of the past year. And 50% of all adults had said that they had taught themselves something some, some creative hobby or pursuit, some artistic activity in the year preceding the survey. So we're living now in this poking, texting, buzzing, beeping world, right? We have extraordinary amount of activity, creative expression that's being shared. 1.2 billion Facebook users, uh, 500 million items posted every day. We've got uh, 6 billion hours of YouTube being watched every month. That's an hour for every single person on Earth. 310, active million, 310 million active Twitter users, 500 million tweets a day, that's the equivalent of a 10 million page book being produced every single day. Three billion hours of uh, video games are played uh, weekly. The average 20-year-old has played 10,000 hours of video games by the time they've reached that age, which is the same amount of time it takes to be a master violin player. So they're really, really good at it. 
But as I reflected on this incredible renaissance, this incredible activation of creativity, um, it seemed that perhaps the pendulum had shifted too far. Um, that maybe there's a downside to this explosion of self-expression. And in fact, scholars at USC have looked at what happens to people when they are overstimulated by all the poking, beeping, texting, um, buzzing world that we live in. Those 500,000 tweets. And it turns out that our brains don't like to stand still when they are assaulted by that much stimulation. They like to tackle the incoming signal and then move quickly to something else. Now that turns out to not be what happens when the brain is being empathic. When a person is trying to put themselves in the shoes of somebody else, the brain actually has to stay fixed long enough to be able to rehearse in their mind what someone else might be feeling, someone else's story, someone else's narrative. So there's growing concern that we're losing, this rising generation is losing their capacity to empathize. So recently I wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education called Thinking Bigger Than Me. And so when I think about cultural expression, I think there are me experiences, and I think there are bigger than me experiences, and both are important. Me experiences begin when people ask the question, what do I have to say? What do I want to say? Bigger than me experiences begin with the question, what can I learn? Or what should I know? Me experiences tend to be about pleasure, what we call sort of hedonic pleasure, or hedonic happiness. Bigger than me, ex me experiences are about purpose more than pleasure. We call that eudaimonic happiness. It's happiness that's organized around a greater purpose in life. Me experiences are about doing. Making, 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 doing, doing, putting it out in the world. And bigger than me experiences are what John Dewey would, would call undergoing. Having a transformation in how you think or feel or see a narrative arc that takes you to a new place. Me experiences are about identity, and bigger than me experiences are about identification. Me experiences are about the egoistic imagination. How, what can you imagine yourself to be and who you can be? And bigger than me experiences are about the empathic imagination, imagining who someone else is or who they could be. I think the pendulum is beginning to swing back to bigger than me experiences. And we see this if we, if we think about what millenniums are valuing. They are valuing lives of purpose, they are increasingly valuing the idea of authenticity. They are valuing interaction, shared experience, immersive experiences. They are valuing diversity. They are uh, surprisingly loyal when they uh, connect with a brand that they care about, they stick with it. So a few trends that I think represent this new, emerging, bigger-than-me mentality. One is the slowdown, the slowdown economy. We have slow foods. We have the rise of community darkrooms. We have the rise of vinyl, which is shocking everybody in the music business. 
Last year, 40 million units were sold, almost a billion dollars worth of business in the music industry around vinyl. We have demanding brands, right? The idea that you can actually ask your audience or your customer not just to be conveniently engaged with you, but to actually work at it. So Beck put out an album two years ago or three years ago that was only sheet music. If you wanted to listen to it, you had to play it yourself or you had to find someone else to play it for you. And when you think about the greatest rise, at least in the music business, it's around festivals, these immersive experiences. And think about a festival. It takes you eight hours to drive in a single lane of traffic to get out to a, a, a farm. It's like 110 degrees. There's no place to go to the bathroom. People are getting sick on you. And yet, Coachella sold 250,000 tickets at an average price of $300 in 30 minutes. Right? Something about re-immersing ourselves in these shared experiences is extremely powerful for the millennials. And immersion is happening not just in fields across the country, but it's happening through technology now. So the rise of augmented reality and virtual reality is changing our world every day. This is shocking. 171 million virtual reality users are predicted by 2018, and over 200 million augmented reality. Right? The ability to take your phone and, and, and overlay on any object anywhere a narrative, a story. That's going to be what we all experience all the time. It's not going to be only reserved to, for a few people who are first movers. That's going to be an innovation that's going to be transformative. And we have to understand how that, what that means for us and for our spaces and for what we're trying to do. So I just want, I want to close by having you think a little bit about this moment. Because I, I think we are in the second radical revolution of expressive life our world has ever seen. The first one was 550 years ago with the invention of movable type and the Gutenberg press. And it, unle it unleashed an amazing amount of expressive possibility. Now, much of that expression was oriented around religion, right? And we saw the, the Reformation and the flourishing of all kinds of religious ideas and politics. We saw the Enlightenment and we saw the, uh, the overthrow of governments. Um, we are seeing the same level of radical democratization in our expressive life 550 years later, except I would say it's not around politics and religion, although it includes that, it's around culture. It's around the expression of creative ideas. It's around story. So that's a remarkable world we're all in. And I think the question for us when we say, does arts engagement even matter? The question is, for whom? I think the question is, does it matter for those of us that might be running institutions? Does what we do matter 
for the great current of cultural life in the 21st century. And I would say that if we thought of ourselves as a Catholic church back when Gutenberg uh, invented the printing press, we are those cathedrals of cultural consumption, those of us that have brick-and-mortar institutions. What can we do differently? How do we tap into all of this extraordinary creative expression? How do we deepen it? How do we connect it? How do we make it more interpretive? And I think that requires us to think differently. And so one idea I would leave with you is what would it mean if you open sourced your institutions? Not everything. I think there's still an opportunity to curate, to get to those bigger than me experiences, to let people experience something they've never experienced before and maybe wouldn't have unless you presented it to them. But what if some portion of what you did was open to the best ideas of your community? Many of you may already be working in that way, but uh, I would hazard to say that as we're trying to make what we do relevant to this extraordinary cultural and expressive renaissance, we need to be as open as possible to the best ideas that are in our midst, that are being created and put forward every single day by the millions and millions of people who, if they don't have access to our tools and our spaces, are going to have access to other platforms and other spaces. So, uh, thank you very much. So, I'm kind of curious, um, this, this new world that we're living in where a lot of our arts experiences that aren't co-created, you go into an immersive environment and they're built for Instagram. Uh, so the Museum of Ice Cream, for example. Um, and very not very deep in terms of content. And I've been thinking more and more about how there seems to be, I think there's an impending backlash against that and a larger um, need for things that force you actually to unplug and not bring your phone. Are you seeing that? Um, and do you think that that's going to continue and how arts producers might think about those creating experiences that are deep but kind of connect with the empathic mind? Uh, I'd like to know more about the Museum of Ice Cream. Uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't had lunch yet, so I'm, I'm having a little trouble focusing on anything other than the museum. Uh, you know, I, th I think what we have to balance is, is spectacle for spectacle's sake, for spectacle that's embedded in deep human experience. So we're not going to get away from spectacle in the sense that people are, are increasingly going to be used to a multi-sensory experience. Um, you know, the festivals are largely uh, people are not occasionally taking photographs and, and, uh, and sending them, but in general, people kind of get unplugged. Um, and it's often because you can't actually get a signal in the middle of uh, a rural area of our country. Um, but I think these immersive environments, um, you know, there's, there's restaurants now, uh, there's scotch companies that bring you into a 360-degree space, and every meal you have uh, a sensory experience of a different image uh, of, of a different set of sounds and smells. Um, and, you know, that may... Uh, uh, it, so it's technological, but it's not, it's not necessarily cheap if it's, if it's truly immersive in a way that gets people to be transported and to experience their world differently. 
Um, so I think what we all need to kind of be thinking about is not digital technology as either um, sort of a, a vacuous spectacle, thin, uh, temporary, uh, versus this uh, physical, embedded, uh, non-digital world. I think the digital is increasingly going to be a place where we can experiment with experience. Uh, but we have to bring to it the right value set, uh, the right purpose, that idea of transforming or undergoing. Um, and so uh, I don't think the antidote is simply to create more unplugged experiences, um, although I think there is an opportunity for that, and we're seeing uh, young people craving the, the turning off. But it's really understanding how to use um, uh, evolving technologies and digital spaces and the Internet of Things um, to, uh, to fundamentally uh, connect with our human experience as opposed to take us out of our human experience. And that's where I think we need some of our best minds, some of our best artists to be really experimenting um, and, and driving what an experience really means in the, uh, in the late part of the 21st century. John Moscone from Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. Uh, just very grateful for what you're saying. And I would love for you, just if you could, to your last uh, sentence or two, just to um, elaborate a little bit on the, the terms that really thrilled me, which were the art, uh, art as tools and the concept of relevance. Can you talk about that in, in terms of um, kind of moving away from what art as an object and art as a, um, an asset and how communities define that for us? So I, I think we've already begun moving away from art as a uh, product to, to process, which is, I think, part of this. Um, I'll just, a, a very brief story, uh, um, and this is actually more than a decade ago, but when I went to see the David in Florence, uh, I went down the long uh, hallway to the rotunda where the David was, and there was an art student off to the side that was drawing a picture of the David. Not very good picture, if I can remember. There were about 50 people. All of them were gathered around the artist looking at his sketch, and not a single person was looking at the David. Um, and it, it, it occurred to me, part of what we did in that 20th century, that narrative, is that we, we kind of removed people from that process of being able to look over the shoulder of artists. So I think part of thinking about art as more than product is to allow people back into the process. And they're getting it, right? They're, they're getting it through reality TV shows that um, uh, Top Chef, uh, um, fashion shows, uh, music shows that, that give people uh, a, a way to see behind the curtain, uh, see behind uh, the, 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 the glass wall. Um, but there are so many other ways now that we're seeing across the country where people are recognizing the, art, the artist and designer as an asset for community. Uh, the, most, uh, the, the biggest policy change has been around the idea of creative placemaking. We can use whatever language we want for it, but the idea that artists are um, what I would call imagination partners for every single sector of our world. Um, and, uh, and we can't advance in health or in sustainability, or we can't solve the problems of traffic, or our political problems, or our problems around uh, immigration, or the, 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 the ability for cultures uh, to, to, to get along and to, to learn from one another, unless artists are in the middle of, of helping those transformations. And, and the way artists ask questions, how they engage publics, their methodologies. Um, you know, the design field has been discovered. So design thinking has seen this unbelievable ascendancy. Uh, and I think that's just too narrow a container for uh, what's more largely considered to be arts and design-based methodologies and tools, which, uh, which are, exist in every community. 
Um, and we need, uh, and many, many artists are increasingly finding that they do their best work in those spaces. So as Liz Lerman would say, it's not about you know, high arts and community art, um, and then switching it and saying it's about community art and high art, but it's about a world that looks like this, where every form of expression can be honored. Um, but we know that artists who are working with community and deploying their assets in new ways are bringing that knowledge back into their art and producing some of the most powerful, most uh, uh, transformative art of our times. Um, and so, you know, Design and Arts Colleges, 120,000 graduates, most of them are being trained for this little narrow thing that they will never do, right? In music schools, about 1% of our graduates actually get to play in an orchestra professionally. Yet our curriculum is completely geared towards that, uh, that eventuality which is not there for them. So I think every design and arts college has got to figure out how to help those young people recognize they're carrying around this incredible toolkit of creative competencies that they can use in so many areas. They can continue to be artists, they can continue to make art, uh, but they can always find ways to be an imagination partner uh, and to get out of the studio and off the stage and into their world and be a powerful voice, a powerful maker, uh, a powerful partner for, for transformation and change. My name is Maria Lazarova. I'm uh, the Dean of Arts Conservatories at Orange County School of the Arts. And uh, I work with um, primarily uh, 2,500 students who are aged between 12 to 18 um, in, from, in 15 different areas of arts. So you touched upon my question a little bit at the tail end of your answer there, but my question is for those of us who are educators, and I'd argue that all of us here are educators, no matter what our area is, how do we train the next generation of artists, artist-minded people, not, not necessarily all of them become professional artists, especially you that I see you're affiliated with um, Arizona State University, uh, especially in these institutions that are so ingrained in this way of thinking that is antiquated now. And how do we as institutions change to better prepare our students for the world that you just presented? Yeah. Um, so it's urgent, so I, I would say that that change can't take a decade. Uh, we are at ASU, and we have 5,000 students, and we're committing that every single student has got to have a significant um, community-engaged experience as part of a design and arts course. So 1,000 students a year will be deployed uh, across the valley um, uh, using their creative talents with community partners in, ethically, in ethical ways, in inclusive ways to make their, their communities better. Uh, that will do a lot of things. One, it, 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 it embeds them in a way that makes it more likely they will stay in our community. So right now we graduate uh, almost 1,000 students a year, about 650 leave our area to go make their lives someplace else. So we want them to have relationships and networks and to understand the impact they can have, uh, they can have locally. But I think it's also about partnering with all the other cultural institutions. So, you know, if you think about our cultural life, we have two major rivers of cultural life. One is um, our nonprofit arts organizations. Uh, about 30 billion is expended a year. Commissions, we hire artists, we have collections, we, um, we have stages, we have museums, we have spaces. And then about 10 billion is spent by universities who commission artists and hire artists and have stages and have collections of assets. And these things just simply run along parallel tracks with occasional internship that might happen between them. And why can't all of our cultural institutions be teaching hospital models for the arts? So that our students are spending a significant amount of their time 
working with you and ideally in those institutions, not only perhaps helping you with back office operations to reduce your, your costs, but actually being part of developing, designing, advancing community programs, um, uh, apprenticing, working alongside, putting their own work on your stages and in your halls and in your, in your, in your galleries, a true teaching hospital model. Um, what would that look like if all of our institutions had joint appointments, right? So all of our faculty were also jointly appointed as leaders of our cultural institutions. It makes no sense that we've created these two separate rivers. So I think if we're going to really make a difference, it's not going to just be in the academy, it's going to be in partnership with our, with our communities. Hello, my name is Nareet Smith. I'm with Grand Performances. And um, it was touched upon in the panel prior as well and, and a little bit on the, the conversation around empathy. We are in a sense a traditional presenter in that we buy performing artists, arts and works. Uh, and we're constantly having the conversation about how we can make it less ephemeral mm and deepen the experience for our audiences. Now there's beauty, of course, in, in it being ephemeral, uh, and that's part of the nature of, of the performance. But I would love to know a little bit about um, some of the um, other examples of this idea of deepening relationships with our audiences, as, and also what you think about post-show talkbacks. This is kind of a post-show talkback, so um, I don't know if it's working or not. Um, I think I would call these, think about every uh, engagement as a 360-degree engagement. So what are all the ways in which someone might intersect with that performance or presentation? Um, I would bring your teams together and literally force yourself to identify 100 ways that people can engage with this work, right? Um, before you put anything out there, um, maybe you won't be able to do all 100, you can prioritize, but I think that exercise is really, really valuable. Um, and I, I think it's before the performance, it's after, it's, it, has to, it has to cut across multiple platforms, so people have to have many touch points to engage with the work. Um, just as an example, and this is old now, uh, but I remember, in, I think it was in 2004, uh, the performing arts field brought all the different performing arts disciplines together in this, in this summit at Pittsburgh. Some of you may have been there. Um, and, uh, and at that time, they had uh, uh, some young people on stage trying to tell everybody how they had to use technology differently. And everybody in the audience really just wanted to know how to build a better website. Um, and, uh, and this young uh, woman on stage said, uh, you really need a whole mindset change. And she gave an example of a dance group that she worked with where they were they filmed the, uh, the rehearsals, um, and, uh, and, and there was one dancer who was really struggling uh, with a particular jump. They captured that little story and shared that with people um, several days before the event. So they sent um, you know, a, a link to that little video clip. Um, and so she said, the moment when that moment, the moment, the moment came, uh, of that performance, when the dancer was about to do that jump, everybody was on the edge of their seats because they were already, uh, they, they already had a deeper context for what was happening. They were invited into the creative process. They were rooting for the dancer. You know, it's not that unlike how we watch the Olympics and the way we tell stories about those athletes well before 
before the, the, the gun starts for the, for, the, for the race. We already know who they are. We know their aspirations, their, uh, what they've overcome. And so we've just got to figure out how do you get people more touch points to who our artists are, to how their ideas emerged. Um, and then afterwards, not just think about the talk back, but all the ways people can interpret the work, share their interpretations. Um, you know, I, I think of sort of cultural graffiti in the digital age, all the ways people can tag on top of cultural work. Um, you know, there's great examples in museums where, uh, where, um, uh, where people can choose to either hear the curator's version of the exhibit or uh, the version that uh, other people have created, right? So you, th there might be 20 different uh, ways of interpreting that museum exhibit, and, uh, and different people might create their own pathway through it. And like a playlist, you can kind of decide which playlist you want to listen to. Um, but I really do think it begins with, the, with, with giving yourself that goal of 100 ideas for everything you're putting out in the world, uh, for how it might connect with a different partner, uh, connect on a different platform, uh, connect at a different time, um, but unless we do that kind of generative work, I think we're often trapped in a, in a narrow sense of what is possible. Thank you very much. Please give me a round of applause for Stephen Tepper.